Welcome to the Everlasting Education Podcast, the best of education through a gentle contempt for education. Hello, I'm Scott Postman, your host, and joined by Joffrey Sweet, our co-host and academic advisor at Kepler. And today we're going to dive into Chapter 5, right, Joffrey? Chapter 6. Oh, I am yes. so sorry. We did Chapter 5 <laughs> last week. we've been talking yeah, about yeah, for yeah. an hour. Yeah. <laughs> chapter 6 of Norms and Nobility, continuing on in our discussion. On the necessity of dogma. And, you know, you know, speaking of, you know, the fact that we talked about this chapter for an hour before we started recording. Y'all, we do that. Every every time before yeah. <laughs> we record, we had that. And sometimes I think to myself, I, I wish that we were we were recording this and that uh, people could hear this. You know, this is gold I'm hearing from Scott, sort of thing. And then sometimes I'm I'm very glad the microphone's <laughs> not on. But anyway, we uh, we love doing uh, this show, and we appreciate that that so many of, of you all are, are writing us to tell us how important it's it's been for you. And if there's anyone else who'd like to write us and tell us how important this has been for you, that'd be great. We love it. Or if you have feedback that would help us, you know, deliver better. Yeah. (laughs) I'm always looking for improvement. (laughs) I just want you all to say nice things to us. (laughs) Well, we're going to start by reading uh, a fabulous poem, I think, Billy Mm -hmm. Collins, that really sums up um, what this chapter, in some ways, what this chapter is about. And so we'll start there. Yeah. And this is a poem that, uh, that both of us know and love by Billy Collins. Uh, who is a poetry teacher, a literary professor, and a poetry teacher. Uh, The poem is called Introduction to Poetry. I ask them to take a poem and hold it up to the light like a color slide, or press an ear against its hive. I say, drop a mouse into a poem and watch him probe his way out, or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want them to water ski across the surface of a poem, waving at the author's name on the shore. But all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. (laughs) (laughs) I love that because it's not only true for poetry, but I think it's often true for other kinds of imaginative literature and even, you know, history and and, and different kinds of literature we study. Yeah, and the reason we thought of this poem, we're going to get into this chapter and do a lot of things in order, but the reason we thought of this poem was uh, precisely because there's a story in here uh, that David Hicks tells uh, in which uh, a young teacher he knew who was classically educated was like, oh, my students need to read Plato. Let's do this thing. Uh, and then gave them a reading and asked them to make a detailed outline of their readings. So the students came back and uh, they had all di- diligently made an outline and uh, were completely confused and unimpressed by Plato because they had dissected the thing to death, right? <laughs> they beat it with a rubber hose. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and so what Hicks is getting into in chapter six here is the idea of the dialectic, returning to the dialectic. And I really think this is one of the most important chapters in, you know, so far that we've covered uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, and I want to be careful when I say this, because I think there's a lot of folks doing classical education really well mm-hmm. and trying, we're all trying to improve and, and get better. But one of the things we want to be careful of is that we're not just replicating what we have borrowed back from the progressives and then stamp it with, you know, some Latin and Bible classes or something like that. Right. Thou has said it. Yeah. So one of the things that he reintroduces to us is this idea of the dialectic. And in the opening part of the three sections of chapter six, and in the opening section, he lays out the fact that in early Christendom, 
the need for dialectic, because the scriptures, you know, and, and the gospel answers so much, we have the truth, and so it gets replaced with formal logic, right, dialectic. But living in a post-Christian society, he suggests we need to bring the dialectic back, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with him. Yeah. Um, and maybe we should say that we ought to do the one and not leave the other undone, right? That, right. that in some ways we have to have both. Well, I, th- I think we can say that, uh, obviously, dialectic is logical, yep. but we can also say that logic is dialectical, yep, right? There's, sure. no, there's no way to completely uh, divorce them. I think there's more of an emphasis here. And it, and it, what it was and is a very strong emphasis. Yeah. You're not just relabeling. There is a difference. Um, but, you know, the two are obviously part of each other. The important difference, I, I think, that we would like, we would want listeners to, to conceive of when they're thinking of dialectic is that dialectic is, is the use of dogma as a springboard yes. forward into, you know, other, you, you don't necessarily stay where you started, but you have to really stand on where you're starting Yes, and to, to, in order to have that back and forth and that movement forward. Well, and I think, you know, to, not to, to derail too quickly, but I think this epitaph um, from Auden in the very beginning sort of mm-hmm. speaks to this idea of why logic and dialectic, you know, why that shift may have taken place. So maybe you'd read that for us. Yeah. So at the beginning of, of the chapter, there's a little uh, epigram. W.H. Uh, Auden, who we've actually we've, <laughs> we've actually talked about him a couple of times in this podcast already. But he says, in a civilized society, that is one in which a common faith is combined with a skepticism about its finality and which agrees with Pascal that to deny, to believe, and to doubt are to man what running is to the horse. Orthodoxy can only be secured by a cooperation of which free controversy is an essential part. Yes. So the ability to maintain what we believe requires us to, at times, challenge it. And this is one of the reasons I personally um, love Christian humanism in the right context. And I want to qualify that because there are some things calling itself Christian humanism that isn't Christian humanism. Yeah, humanism I mean, is a loaded word. Yeah, absolutely. But the idea that there is rational inquiry is compatible with our faith, right? The fact that we believe something. It's not just compatible. It's necessary. Yeah, that we work through it. Um, I think Anselm, when when he talked about um, uh, fides quorum intellectum, the mm. idea that faith is seeking understanding, I believe, but then I want to, you know, I want to work out what it is that I believe. And that's, that's kind of where logic comes in. Dialectic starts with a concept, a preconceived idea or understanding, and then begins to sort of probe at it. Yeah. Yeah. Like that mouse probing out of the poet. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Well, in, on page 67 of the edition uh, we're using, uh, you know, so uh, near the, near the top of that, I was going to quote from Hicks. Uh, We have already seen that Socrates identified dialectic as the form of the activity of thinking, the mind's habit of challenging the thoughts and observations originating in itself or in other minds and of engaging in a desultory dialogue with itself until the issues are resolved. Most young people, for instance, go through a period of doubting or rejecting the religious, social, and political beliefs of their parents. This is healthy and indicates that their minds are coming to dialectical maturity, challenging received and fixed ideas in the process of rejecting them as extraneous or of accepting them as essential to life. That's a great quote. And we talked a little bit about this beforehand. And there, there are different ways of approaching questions, right? When, when questions rise. So um, I remember a time that when, when my kids were all little and that different times they 
you know, they started asking questions. Dad, how do you know we as Christians are the right ones? And, right. you know, why aren't Muslims right? You know, that, that kind of, you know, those kind of questions. And that signaled to me that there was a way, um, you know, or that it was a time to begin having conversations and answering questions and working through things, you know, at, at the level that they were prepared to work through them so that it wasn't just, well, because, you know, we believe the Bible, we're right and we're wrong, shut up, we're not talking about yeah, it. <laughs> right. That's a, um, that's a, that's just a, a really poor way of doing it. But there's, there's other ways, you know, a more poetic way of, of addressing it besides uh, a dialectic way. But the dialectic, I think that, that Hicks uh, is raising here is the idea that we can take something, let's take any kind of concept and suspending temporarily um, something that maybe we believe that's, you know, maybe we look at Plato's forms and say, well, that's kind of bunk, you know, uh, because I believe scripture, but for a moment I'm going to suspend I'm not, you know, discarding it or anything, but I'm going to mm-hmm. suspend what it is and walk with Plato or maybe another way to say it is sit at his feet and listen to him and hear him out and thoroughly understand what it is that, you know, he's purporting and then ask questions so that we see honestly where the thing breaks down and where the thing has, you know, where it has strength. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly. Maybe we discover that, in fact, uh, we need to discard some things and pick up some of these new things we've been looking at. Yeah. Um, so the, yeah, the, um, the, the quote down just a little further, he says, you know, whereas dialectical thinking may occur at an unconscious level in all men, education makes man conscience conscious of how his mind works when engaged in the activity of thinking. So what he's saying is we all do this process of dialectic, yeah. right? What the the key is, is that we're able to um, do it well. Right. And, you know, and re- remembering that education is the formation of the man. Yes. Right. Uh, and so, you know, as growing into maturity, I think, I think the first part of, of the, of what Hicks is saying is really fundamental. You know, he, he's, he's making a point from it, uh, but <laughs> we actually have to remind ourselves of, of the assumption there. Dialectic is essential to life, to yes. living. Yep. Um, and, and Christians need to have it, right? We see more and more pagan forms of thinking among Christians mm-hmm. because it's in this little blobular form yes. in us, right? <laughs> Just like the rest of modern man. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the, the blob is in all of us of yep. dialectic, yep. right? You know, we, here we are, sapient. But we, if, it's not, if it's not developed, we can't escape pagan modes. Right. Well, we, we, by default begin to inherit them. And then we begin to even look at our Christianity, you know, in terms or, or read scripture or, or think of our relationship with God in terms of these pagan, you know, suppositions that we're holding on to. Dialectic allows us to learn how to think well and looking at things in a way that, you know, would be more Christianly, if I could put it that right. way. You know, one of the big points, you know, there, there are a few threads that Hicks is developing in this chapter. I, mm-hmm. I, I agree with you. This is one of the key chapters in, in, in the book. But one of them is that it's, it's integral to the education process to be able to, so it, with a dialectical approach, you can, you know, despite the fact that communists <laughs> use this word, um, with a dialectical approach, you can inhabit and dwell, explore, right? And, and by that, uh, progress. But with, without a dialectical approach, you actually kind of turn that pyramid, right? So with a dialectical approach, you 
although you know what you're standing on, you're, you're quite open as you explore so that you can arrive at particular truths. That's right. Right. Um, you know, what happens, uh, what happens without a dialectical approach is what we see out in the world today. You flip that and your point of entry is think this and yes. nothing else. Right, right. Right. So immediately knowledge, true knowledge, right? We talked about knowledge last week, yep. right? So true knowledge, the sort of knowledge that you can interact with and have relationships with, um, is, is dead on the beach. Right. Well, and you, you mentioned the, the Marxist dialectic, right? The materialist dialectic. Mm-hmm. And, and he gets into that at yes. the end of this chapter, which I, I really appreciate that. Um, because really, um, true dialectic, the development of the true dialectic is a panacea against these kinds of thinking that, that people just default into accepting, right? Yeah. You know, Wonderful. The classic use of the word panacea, so. by the way. <laughs> I, just, I, lo- I love it when people use words in the way the dictionary says it instead of how people use it, okay. which isn't even necessarily healthy of me. <laughs> it's just uh, a vice I indulge in myself uh, as well. Sorry for the distraction. Yeah, no, that's great. It just makes me more self-conscious of what yeah. I say. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. I'm really good at doing that. Uh, this is fun. Um, so, yeah, so this this idea he he develops, Joffrey was talking about a story that um, that he tells in in, in kind of unpacked it a little bit for us in the beginning, but this teacher is going to teach Plato and instead of dissecting or, you know, he, he dissects it and then, you know, the kids lose interest. But then when he approaches it a different way by starting with the questions um, right, and, and then beginning, you know, to, to basically work the students through a, a lot of different ways of, of looking at this thing, then introducing the text. Now they have something to interact with because their mind is stimulated to think about this in a variety of ways. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is a, a podcast about education. Um, and I'd love for you to unpack that a little more that, that asking questions, mm-hmm. is that what's meant by dialectic? Yeah, I think it, it's asking questions in a particular way. Mm-hmm. So, so in one place he, he talks about the fact that uh, by taking the, the modern approach, what we do is we, we start at one place and we eliminate all the other possibilities and we just work with part of the knowledge. But in a dialectic, it's, it's an understanding that in, in some ways, I think, he, how does he put it here? Um, he talks about the Periclean and, and, uh, uh, or Parmenides and, and Heraclean, Parmenides, unity, and the Heraclean flux are brought together, right? So this all is one as well, well as everything's in flux is sort of brought together in this. Mm-hmm. And, and what he means is that we look in and say, okay, we're part of a cosmos. All truth is part of one knowledge, one truth. And as Christians, we understand what that one truth is. And so in a dialectic, we're just asking questions and the teacher begins then to learn how to ask good questions of the students, right? right? I mean, when, when a little child says, why is the sky blue? We're starting a dialectic, right? right? And they can be that simple. When we're asking interpretive questions of the, of the text, this is a dialectic. We're, we're starting that process. You know, what did, what did, you know, Descartes mean when he said that, you know, why is he putting these things together? We're starting to ask questions. And so when you begin, um, you know, in the process of this example of this teacher, when you begin to ask, you know, definition questions, conceptual questions, quality questions, you know, is, you know, ethical questions, we're beginning to raise these questions. We start unpacking the different kinds of dynamic dynamics that exist. You say good questions, uh, you know, and what, what I, what I hear when you say that is, is positive questions, positive questions that can be answered positively and generously. 
right? <laughs> not to say that there's there's not you know ultimately one truth, but even you know, our God is the one and the many, yeah. right? Uh, and, and so you know having that that integrated generous approach as opposed to an approach that begins with skepticism, with narrowness, yeah, with yeah. denying, uh, and of course denial is 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 appropriate, but yeah. not when it is your your epistemological approach right right, right. yeah and uh hicks has some great uh, great stuff on that in, in chapter two toward the bottom of page 69 today however or i say section two of this chapter today however teachers are discouraged from teaching themselves mm -hmm. and students are asked to judge ideas in analytical detachment on the basis of unverifiable ideological presuppositions in this regard descartes is the architect of this modern school he used doubt as a proof of being yeah. He unpacks that a bit. I want to keep talking it. about it and keep yeah. reading. He used doubt as a proof of being and thereby paved the way for modern education's rejection of the dialectical unity of opposites, whether of mind and body, of visible and invisible, or of doubt and dogma. Yet ironically, there is an unverifiable presupposition lurking behind Descartes' first principle, the cogito ergo sum. By attributing thought to being, Descartes makes an hypothesis that is not itself subjected to doubt. Those, a dogma. The thought is not a proof of being, it is a proof of thinking. But that it should be so is a dogma necessary for the birth of Cartesian rationalism. What in fact the Cogito Ergo Sum demonstrates is man's inability to doubt in the absence of a dogma attributing thought to being a dialectical verity. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, th this idea that he starts with a supposition is is kind of funny, you know, that Descartes starts this way. But, but what he's pointing to is the idea that even, you know, in starting with skepticism, he has to start with a positive thing that he yes. already believes. Exactly. And so, you know, so it, it, you know of, of course, it yeah. utterly collapses and our society collapses. Uh, but, but that's exactly the point I'm making, right? Yeah. That, that, that the questions you're talking about are open and generous. And we as Christians look at the world without fear. That's right. Yeah. I, I, I always think of uh, uh, Spurgeon who said, when somebody asked him, how do you defend the Bible? Teach me to defend the Bible. He said, you don't need to defend it anymore than a lion. Yeah. You know, just, yeah. just let him out of the cage and, and it'll defend itself. And I think, you know, truth is that way. And, and what Hicks points out in pointing that Descartes in his, you know, skepticism couldn't start anywhere else other than a presupposition, you know, that thinking and being were, were one and the same. So we do this, you know, with any concept that we're going to study or look at and, and bring the dialectic to. Now, there is a place for what we call enlenchus as part of the, the Greek word enlenchus is to strip away or to, you know, to, yeah. to denounce what isn't true. And this is one of the things that Socrates is known for. Um, and, and I love, <laughs> I love in, in this chapter that um, Hicks treats Socrates very generously mm. and says he was very kind and humble by telling people, I don't know anything. <laughs> and you, you know uh, when he's known as the gadfly of Athens, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, we, we're uh, some of our students. A little side note here: some of our our students. Uh, one of my classes, we're reading through Plato's Republic, and so we get to Cephalus uh, in chapter one, and he goes into the house of Cephalus, and Cephalus is old. You know, he's about on the. He's like, oh, Cephalus, you're uh, you're where the poets say the threshold of life. You know, so what's it like? You know, so it's like showing up at the family reunion and asking great grandpa, hey, great grandpa, since you're about ready to die, tell me what it's like to be old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I I actually think that uh, it would have been appropriate for all all of us, including uh, the you know uh, we, we who consider ourselves his disciples, 
if he had said the the words, I only know that I know nothing, nothing. to us, like a little roll of the eyes yeah. in the sky would <laughs> yeah, have been appropriate. appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, six is very generous. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so one of the things that Socrates did in this, this in Lancus is basically to then, you know, once someone affirmed a position, then to show where it has faults or where the fallacy lies yeah. and then begin to strip away. Uh, and Socrates was often known as one who would not tell you what he thought the truth was. Um, you know, he saw himself as a midwife, but what he would do is, and this is what would make everybody mad is just show you how you're wrong in every possible way right. without ever telling you what the right answer was. Right. Um, and, and in the process of Enlancus, um, you know, from a, a strictly Greek perspective, you're able to get closer to what the truth is by seeing everything that's not, yeah. you know, but you know, as Christians, we ultimately then have the scripture, right? Right. To be able to come in and look at, you know, once we see all the dynamics and the way that maybe this thinking process fails, then the gospel makes a whole lot more sense to yes. us. Uh, well, yeah, but the de denial, to, mm -hmm. being able to deny things is is obviously key to any dialectical and logical approach, you know, and in that epigraph we read, right? Like yep. the quote, you know, quoting Pascal, um, you know, maybe this is too poetic a way of putting it, but Christians must affirm that they should deny. Yes. But more importantly than that, they should affirm that they should affirm. That's right. Right. Yep. Like we, yep. we, we are affirmative. We are positive. Yes. Right. More than anything else. But sometimes you just got to cut the thing off. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, yeah. So as, as Christians, we, we can start with, with the affirmative and then begin to unpack that or, you know, ask mm -hmm. questions about it. And those things that are true will always be verifiably, you know, that will stand up to the scrutiny of the lion yep. defending itself. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Well, you know, uh, so on, on page 71, you know, and I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm reading uh, a bit more than I, than I normally do, no, this, but this great. really is such a great chapter. Um, so the first full paragraph on page 71 I'm going to read the beginning and the end of it. Yep. Dialectical education implies that a learner cannot see all sides of a question until he has chosen one. But analytical education assumes that choosing one side blinds the learner to all others. Then the end of the paragraph here. The value-free approach of analysis warps education by methodically straining out the normative nutrition in life and letters and by sacrificing the transcendent life-transforming value of knowledge to a dead set of utilitarian options and objectives. Whereas the value-free stance is useful in analysis at the low material level of being it is a disastrous position to try to live from. Oh, it's such a good so point. So telling, yes. I mean, because that, that is how our society wants us to live. We talked right. about that when we talked about art in the last episode. All that our education is giving us, all that our philosophy is giving us is a low material level of being. That's right. It's, in, you know, in that kind of modern education, sometimes we call it a democratic education, mm. um, but in that kind of education, it is lowest common denominator. And Hicks talked about this in the last chapter where we talked about we have the three levels of being, right? The divine and where man is, and then, you know, the, the utilitarian part of it. Mm -hmm. And that's where the education of the modern man leads us by just doing analysis. There's no oughts, there's only is, and, and, and it's a detached um, you know, uh, this is where, for, for example, I'll just give an example, like we're social studies, what we talk about instead of a humanities, social studies, this is how much product was turned, this country gave this much, here's the travel routes. And it's just all a bunch of facts and data without any story that gives meaning 
or any kind of ideal image that we, you know, that the student would ascribe to or feel in any kind of, you know, passion about. And that's why I think that example of the teacher when he, you know, allowed the students to work through and talk and argue out the different positions um, about Plato that they did, that when he brought in the text of Minnow, and I think that the, the question there was, can virtue be taught, right? Mm-hmm. And so when he brought that in, now they had a position to start with. You know, different sides of the argument had a, a position that could now be challenged, could be brought up against, could be interacted with. Yes. And they had a personal investment in that, you know, in that knowledge. Right. And so you say start, you talk about, you know, a lot, a lot of what you're saying has to do with being at the, at the, at these base levels. There's nothing wrong with being base, <laughs> right? If you're standing on it. Mm, yeah. Right? right. And so, you know, it's it, the, our, our problem is not that we're looking at low materials. Yeah. Right. Our problem is that we think we're low materials too. Right. And that these low materials don't tell us anything about the higher things. And he, you know, he so you know, he, he talks about, um, you know, a, a, about this, this warping of, uh, you know, there's no nutrition in life and letters and this analytical education. Um, and, and then he, so, and we read that poem about beating a, beating a, a poem to death with, with a hose. And so the paragraph below the one I just read, he uses an excellent phrase, endless taxonomies. Mm. <laughs> uh, but before that, he, you know, he said something that reminded me of another Billy Collins poem, which I'm not going to read, <laughs> but I make well. So he says, uh, uh, Hicks says, today we count quarks and pulverize DNA molecules instead of numbering demons on the heads of pins. But what has really changed? We still flounder in a shallow ocean of bits and pieces of endless taxonomies. Can there be an end to dredging up the particles of the material universe? You know, this reminds me of, of Solomon and of, of much reading in many books. There is no end. But Billy Collins has this poem called Questions About Angels. And it, you know, it's this beautiful idea of this, you know, this, this singer who, who, who is an angel and he, he meditates about all the questions that people have asked about angels. Mm. And one of the, the great questions that he mentions in the poem is that like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? And we can laugh dismissively at that question, you know, because it, it's so easy for us to, to get narrow. We think, and this is one of the points that comes at the end, at the end of, of the chapter, but we moderns think that the people before us were narrow right <laughs> when, when we are the ones who are narrow we just talked about like a flipping yeah. flipping the how we how we approach uh, approach knowledge and so we can't take seriously like we giggle and say i can't believe they actually asked that right but if, what if you took that question seriously how many angels can dance on the head of a pin and you know he, so collins asks that um he says uh Let's see here. Uh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna read I'm gonna read a bunch of this. I'm sorry. Do uh, it. <laughs> questions about angels. Of all the questions you might want to ask about angels, the only one you ever hear is how many can dance on the head of a pin. No curiosity about how they pass the eternal time, besides circling the throne, chanting in Latin, or delivering a cust of bread to a hermit on earth, or guiding a boy and girl across a rickety wooden bridge. Do they fly through God's body and come out singing? Do they swing like children from the hinges of the spirit world, saying their names backwards and forwards? Do they sit alone in little gardens changing colors? What about their sleeping habits, the fabric of their robes, their diet of unfiltered divine light? What goes on inside their luminous heads? Is there a wall these tall presences can look over and see hell? If an angel fell off a cloud, would he leave a hole in a river and would the hole float along endlessly filled with the silent letters of every angelic word? 
If an angel delivered the mail, would he arrive in a blinding rush of wings, or would he just assume the appearance of the regular mailman and whistle up the driveway reading the postcards? No, the medieval theologians control the court. The only question you ever hear is about the little dance floor on the head of a pin where halos are meant to converge and drift invisibly. It is designed to make us think in millions, billions, to make us run out of numbers and collapse into infinity. But perhaps the answer is simply one. One female angel dancing alone in her stocking feet, a small jazz combo working in the background. She sways like a branch in the wind, her beautiful eyes closed, and the tall, thin bassist leans over to glance at his watch because she has been dancing forever, and now it is very late, even for musicians. Mm. So he, so Collins takes the, the question seriously, and like others who have taken that question seriously before, realizes it's designed to make us think immensely, even though it's a tiny question. And then the next thing that happens is he has a bunch of questions, he, which is exactly what a classical education should be and do. It does. And, and it's, it's that kind of dialectic that you just you know, demonstrated through this poem that raises us to look at those normative questions, right? To right. Answer, ask those higher, higher questions. And, and I love this. He quotes at the end of that section uh, from T.S. Eliot from his uh, play, The Family Reunion, better not to know than to know the fact and know it means nothing, mm. right? And and that's the difference between a modern and a classical education. What does it mean? What does it matter if you know, you know, uh, all these little facts and data that we have unpacked while you're laughing at the head, yes. you know, the, the, the angel in the head of the pen, I'm an angel in the head of the pen, when you don't even know what any of it means. Yeah. yeah. So it's better not to know that analytical stuff and have some sense of your value in the universe, some sense of who God is and, and what your life means and not know any of that, you know, this is what that's fuels, the trade off. Right. Exactly. And, it, and it's what fuels actually trolls. Yeah. You know, this, there, you know, n nothing means anything. Mm -hmm. And because nothing means anything that, you know, I, I guess I can take some satisfaction to be more impressive by just being a better computer than other humans and going around <laughs> correcting everybody. Yeah. There's no knowledge. There's no conversation. There is simply fact. And you got your facts wrong. Comment section. <laughs> I love, I love the way you pulled that into our modern content. Uh, uh, but it, but it's true, right? So it, it meaning, you know, we're going to look for meaning somewhere, right? And if we don't find right. meaning where, where it belongs, we're going to create meaning that, that, you know, is itself irrelevant. Um, so he, he wraps up and, and, and we'll kind of, you know, wrap up this, this chapter a little bit. Uh, but, but he wraps this um, final section up with, you know, this conversation about the material uh, dialectical materialism. And he says the West uh, on the top of page 74, the West passionate rejection of what in communist doctrine most appeals to the ideals of community and its Christian humanist tradition, and that's why I wanted to qualify earlier, and on the other hand, its whole hog acceptance of the one fundamental tenet of communism most repellent to its tradition. I refer to the tenet of dialectical materialism. Traditionally, Western man has heard the call demanding interchange and has assumed freedom as his reward for shouldering the responsibility of heeding this call. Socrates' dialectic made him capable of interchange by moving him toward the highest level of being, where he transcended physical limitations and attained full humanity, a state summarized by Konstantakis' epitaph, I expect nothing, I am not afraid, I am free. Dialectic formed a man who both knew and desired what he knew, and Western education affirmed until recently this connection between intellect 
and, and will as vital uh, to the individual's freedom and dignity. So this idea that where we sometimes push back against communism, what we're doing is actually feeding this materialist dialectic in our modern education mm. when we're not you know, doing real dialectic work. Right. right. So the the real dialectic work rises raises it up above what is, you know, some class, you know, proletariat versus bourgeoisie class or some sort of um, you know, class struggle that 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 this is going to be, you know, confined to and brings us up to what does it actually mean to be a human being? And it's not in this material world. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people struggle with, with the very word dialectic because mm -hmm. communism has done so much to influence how we define it in our own minds. And so, you know, I mean, obviously the word dialectic is, is, you know, based on the idea of dialogue of back mm -hmm. and forth of crossing. Right. Um, and so it's supposed to be interactive, but of course in, in, in Marxist thought it's oppositional. Yeah. It's, right? it's, ba it's based in Hegelian, you know, dialectic. Right. right. And then, then it becomes this class struggle. But of course it's oppositional because there is no transcendent. Yes. Right. And so, you know, without uh, an idea of the transcendent, there can be no true dialectic. Right. Not if it's conversation. Yeah, that's right. Well, this has been a fun one to unpack. And I, by the way, loved the poetry. I think yeah. that, all, that, was all, that was fantastic bringing that in here. Um, so the aim of education becomes similarly utilitarian in uh, the, the communist way. Um, but for those, I'm just kind of finishing, uh, closing out with this quote, and I think I just misquoted it. Um, to pass on to each member of the next generation the analytical tools he needs to know himself in a sensed object within the social and political domains of human experience and to function effectively within those domains. That's the, the humanist dialectic, the, um, uh, I messed up this ending here. <laughs> I was going to read two parts here. Uh, but, um, with the ideology that poisons free thought by arbitrarily restricting our consideration of man to only one of his three domains, the social political while disregarding the individual and the religious domain of human experience. My point that I wanted to bring up, and I, I had a couple of things marked and I read the wrong ones here, but the idea that he concludes with is to be a full human being, we need to come back to the real dialectic. Otherwise, we're going to continue to just, it's a race to the bottom. I guess right. I put it that way, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so going off of that, and perhaps we should close with uh, the words that Hicks closed his chapter with, uh, quoting John Gardner, talking about Chaucer's yeah. early education. This education encouraged a philosophical approach to life's troublesome questions and gave noble and dignified arguments on the meaning of life and death. There you go. Well, thanks, everybody. Appreciate you all. God bless.